Welcome to the podcast Byzantium and Friends. I'm Anthony, your host, and I am joined today by my colleague, Tina Sessa. Hi, Tina. Hey, Anthony. Good to, good to be back. So, yeah. So we're doing something different today. I'm not going to record a separate introduction. Uh, we're just going to dive right into this. So most of the episodes that I do on the podcast have to do you know, with historical topics, but every once in a while, I find it fun and interesting to pause and kind of look at how we historians and scholars do our work, how we choose our topics, the institutional conditions under which we live. And this one is a more lighter version of that kind of episode. So for years and years, I just keep a list of things that we collectively do as scholars in our work. That's been the nitty gritty granular research and publications and our footnotes and right. That just kind of bug me. <laughs> and I'm sure I've done all of these things myself at some point. <laughs> um, but they're more like tropes that we do. So if you are a practicing scholar in the field, you might get a kick out of this. And we're not going to call you out by name. So <laughs> the, no names, no names. That's no, the no, rule. No um, and you might find it amusing. If you're not, this will be an interesting glimpse into kind of how the sausage is made. <laughs> um, and yeah, I actually do keep a list uh, of these kinds of tropes that I've encountered in my research from the 4th to the 15th century, and I'm sure that they, you can find them before and after that too. Um, anyway, all right, so we're just going to go back and forth, and so the idea is that, uh, like, I'll try to explain something that I see that bugs me, uh, uh, or to use American expression, grind my gears, or where does it stick in my craw, or... <laughs> say those things. You grind my gears. Grind, maybe it's from Family Guy. I'm not sure. Um, yeah. Um, you, know, he says, you know what? I hate the 19th century. <laughs> um, all right. And uh, and we haven't really rehearsed this much. We, we tossed some ideas back and forth earlier, but uh, uh, most of these might be a surprise to each other. And so I'm actually kind of looking at kind of our mutual reactions to these things. It's like, oh, I see this very, I see this differently, or yeah, that bothers me too, or whatever. All right, so shall I start us off? Sure, go ahead. Okay, so this is um, something that I didn't mention to you the other day when we were kind of rehearsing this a little bit. Okay, so these are, it's a category of ideas, sort of interpretations that every time they're presented, they're presented as if they are innovative and original and that they are always some kind of underdog that's struggling against an established orthodoxy um, that really needs to be resisted. <laughs> Whereas in reality, these original ideas have been around for like at least 70 years and in some cases a century. No one holds the dominant orthodoxy and it's like you cannot find it in print. Uh, and, and yet, so uh, let me give you some examples. Just, so here are two striking ones that I know. The schism of 1054. Oh God, yes, 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 right? yes. So every time it's mentioned, everybody feels that they have to resist this idea that there, something happened in 1054 that was of decisive importance. Like we've known that for a century. Okay. And, and no one is saying the opposite. I mean, maybe you could find some website, right? The other one that I came across recently, again and again and again, actually I wrote an article on this, is the idea that borders are not these impermeable fixed boundaries that no one could ever cross, but you know, that there's right. permeable- Frontiers, fluid frontiers. Yeah, fluid, yeah, yeah, yeah. Blah, blah, so yeah. The earliest that I can find that idea in Byzantine studies, which yeah. is not a cutting edge field, right, in, these, in this sense, is in the 50s. And I can find no one who asserts that borders are impermeable. Yeah, I, I would say to both of these things, I, I hear you completely, that what you're mixing here is the sort of popular historical right. conceptualization of the past with what we do as, as historians, yeah. professional historians. So like 1054... That's something you learn in American high school. If you take European history, you won't be taught very many things about anything before the Renaissance. 
but you'll learn 476, 1054, you know, you'll learn these. And so often part of my job as a teacher is to explain why neither 476 or 1054 are these kind of, you know, watershed yeah. moments in history. They're not ruptures. And I think they they play a life, they have a life as ruptures in the popular understanding. Similar, I think the border thing you know, I actually, when I teach, have to explain to my students when we talk about the Roman frontiers, they're not like, you know, going like pre-EU going between France and Germany where you pass through a checkpoint. Like it just doesn't, that's just not the way it existed. So I don't know. I, I do think they, they exist in the world, although perhaps not in our that's right community of scholars. That's right. But the scholarship in question is not addressed to a popular audience and has yeah. no possibility of reaching to it or anything. It, it's a trope that is very much addressed to other scholars, kind of like policing, like make sure you don't fall into this error again. Even though like I, I, it would make sense to have some kind of campaign to get this idea out there or however we do that, right? <laughs> right we, we don't, right, we don't have right. set instruments for that. Um, but but clearly these communications are intended for other scholars. And yeah. what I find interesting about how this is done is that the idea itself, like the new interpretation of 1054, whatever it is, the new interpretation of the borders, baked into it is this idea that it can't get rid of, that it's an underdog struggling against some orthodoxy that will right. never go away. Right, right. And what would that idea look like if it abandoned that that posture? Yeah, I mean, you're you're hitting at something I think pretty deep in the rhetorical structuring of academic argumentation, which is that we always have to be fighting against something. Yeah, right? we yeah. always have to present ourselves as taking this, un, you know, hitherto unrecognized path. And here's what everybody else does. And here's what I'm doing. I mean, we all do this. It's, mm -hmm. it's, and in fact, if anything, for those of us who don't work in medieval well, periods where you're actually discovering new stuff, new data, um, mm -hmm. and, you know, there is, there are ways in which we do have new data for late antiquity, which is the field I work in. You know, all we're doing is rearranging pieces on a chessboard, right? I mean, it, on, on some level, the, the pieces are set. We're not getting a lot of new pieces. So how do we rearrange those? Well, we 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 kind of, you know, position ourselves as if we are fighting against some sort of overarching discourse that we, you know, even if everyone would agree that nobody thinks that. No. Um and in fact, that kind of dovetails, and maybe in some ways my, so I came up, by the way, with 10, and I was sort of thinking, David Letterman, those of you who are older listening to this podcast might remember the David Letterman show, which has not been on for, I think, decades at this point. Um, and David Letterman used to have this top 10, and he'd start with like, and you know, top 10 reasons why I hate California or something like that. Um, he, he was in New York. Um, and so I have my 10. And so my, my, my number 10 is in fact straw men. And I feel like this is a kind of flavor of the straw man, right? The, the arguments that reduce a complex argument to some position that is so simplistic and so easily debunkable, um, but that no actual living human being has ever made, right? I mean, it's insensitive. It's an artifice in and of itself. And the straw man is, is annoying. I mean, the straw man really gets me. Who thinks this? Who, who actually thought this was right? And, and, and by the way, you know, the, the subspecies of that is when scholars use phrases like, well, scholars claim, mm. but don't actually follow through with a footnote that names names. And so right. thinking like, who, who says this? Who are these people? Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm constantly reading stuff that does this and it drives mm. me nuts. If you're going to, if you're going to attack a position, which is great. I mean, I do it all the time. You got to name, name folks. You can't name, name names. You can't just hide behind this. Well, scholars say, you know, who, who says this? Um, call them out, you know, grow a pair as they say. <laughs> <laughs> Which is what we're not doing here. We're not naming names here. No, we're not naming names. We're not naming names. We're not naming names. I mean, I could, but I will not because sure. that's just cool. Um, have you heard the expression steel man? 
No, what's that? Yeah, so I've heard this as a, I think this is something that like logicians and people who work like on debate, Uh like meta argumentation theory or whatever, that if you're going to argue against the position, you need to argue against the strongest form of it. Okay, so steel as in the metal. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh, right. Yes. Yes. Okay. I want to make sure I was clear. Right. On that so, metaphor yeah. here. so the idea is that sure you can go after position and debunk it, but you have to present it in the strongest mm-hmm. way that it has ever been presented because that's what you need to go after. Yeah. No, I mean, again, there's so much rhetorical artifice that goes into how we make arguments um, that I think sometimes we forget we're doing right and and the best the best stylists are those who do it and we don't even realize they're doing it but um a lot of a lot of our arguments hinge on a lot of the strengths of our positions hinge on how we make the argument right so so maybe maybe you folks in classes classics you know maybe you do have something on all of us (laughs) Uh, i am going to name a name here so alan cameron Right. Um, it, it, he's the, late, no longer with great, the late, great Alan Cameron. Yes. And mm-hmm. when he wanted to debunk a position, I, I think he didn't go after Strawman. He went after every. Oh, oh yeah. Yes. He tracked down every nook and corner in which yep. an idea might yep. be hiding yep. and drew it out. Yep. yep. Uh, <laughs> and named every possible name. You yes. Can, yes. No, for sure. Uh, anyway. Okay. Uh, good for yeah. Cameron. You knew you he were is not that. guilty of these things. No. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure he's a model, but I'm also, right, he certainly right. is not guilty of these things. Um, all right. Should I go with one now? Yeah, go ahead. I've done two. So oh, you've uh, done two? Oh, I've yeah, done right. 10, I have 10 and nine. The, the scholars claim was like my number nine. Got it. So. All right. So I'm going to uh, talk a little bit about translations. Oh, okay. Do you know the book Freakonomics that came out a few yeah, years ago? Yeah, 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 years ago. Yeah. Right. So what it was trying to do was use data to find cases of cheating um, in, like, for example, Sumo, um, that were not, like, if you looked at each individual match, you couldn't say, okay, this was thrown. But if you looked in aggregate and you found patterns and they found patterns, you could say, okay, clearly a good proportion of these matches are thrown. We may not know exactly which ones, but it's irrefutable that this is happening. So my beef with translations, and by the way, I've done a lot of translations, right? Uh, and there, there are good reasons for doing translations. Now, some of the texts that I've translated are very difficult, sort of obscure Byzantine Greek, uh, which is kind of why I took them on as a challenge. And I notice that these texts are rarely ever cited or discussed before a translation is published mm-hmm. and a lot afterwards, but everybody cites the original edition and not the translation. <laughs> well, not so everybody. They have discovered this obscure Byzantine text through yes. their extensive writing in the language. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, no, no, sometimes they cite translations too. And this isn't just for my translations. I just see it in general. Like I know when yeah. a translation has come out and suddenly there's this flurry of articles, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? And, and dissertations and such. And they're like grappling with the original. It's like, yeah, you could have done this before <laughs> the translation, right? Um, and yeah, no, so I know that translations are not as valued um, like, for example, for promotion and, you know, these kinds of things. Like, I knew that that's not a, that's you would you will never get uh, a promoted or tenure or anything like that based on a translation. But it's very, very useful work. For sure. Um, but that so that kind of data might in a, well, in a, in a sense, like if you look yeah, at how many yeah. studies were published yeah. after the translation, how many before. And it it bugs me that they don't cite the translation. I know that that's what they're reading. No, no, of course, of course. And and I mean, I do think this is a particular um, pet peeve that might be specific to classics. Um, I mean, historians will cite translations with, I think, less... I don't know, fear of judgment, perhaps, than, yeah, than, yeah. than classicists. There's there's this unspoken rule that you're not supposed to be using translations if you're a classicist, whereas I think most of us, um, at least myself, I'll speak for myself, I, I'm at a point in my career where if there's a translation, I will track that down because it'll save me an enormous amount of time. And quite frankly, 
you folks in classics are better at translating Greek and Latin than I am. So why not look to the experts? Right, that's what they're for. Exactly, exactly. Why not look to the experts? But but I do think you're right that there is this, it's almost this kind of shame or something in in acknowledging that you're relying on, and I can remember this, I think we chatted about this before, like in graduate school, my God, you just could not let anybody know if you were using a translation, particularly as you pointed out when we were chatting, a lobe. Do not use a lobe. Like, do not let anyone know that you um, own a lobe, that you translate from the lobe. Like, the lobe, the, the addition is bad, the translation is bad, the introduction is bad, the notes are bad. I mean, everything yeah, yeah, about yeah. lobes are bad, which of course is absurd because, you know, you might. Well, you can't even put on and put on. I can, I can see I some lobes there. Of lobes. I use them. They're actually the best thing ever because for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, a lobe has the Latin or Greek on the left side and then the, the right facing page is the translation. And so it actually is the easiest way to go back and forth between the two, which is, if we're being honest, how most of us read Greek and Latin. Yeah. Right. So. I re- so I remember the moment um, it, I was actually an undergrad um, when I uh, no, my degree was in history still, uh, but I was taking a lot of classics courses. And I remember a classics professor, a professor at Michigan, um, and I can't remember who she was talking about, but there was this like aside where she said and she uses lobe. Oh, it was it was about archaeology. It was about archaeology. She was talking about of course, archaeology. Of course, because the archaeologists, everyone always said their languages were, were terrible. And it's yes, like, and she was like caught this archaeology uh, archaeologist no, consulting yeah, a lobe. Yeah, yeah, no, and, and art historians, yeah, yeah. And I froze. I was like, oh, like. I didn't know we weren't supposed to use like oh no, no exactly I mean I can remember studying for my language exams and like feeling like I had to sort of sneak them almost like you know you're putting I don't know a 40 in a brown paper bag I'd have to wrap my lobe up you know and, and put it inside some other book so nobody would see that I was mm. using it um yeah this is this is silliness for sure but I get I get your pet peeve because you know, this is precisely why translations are so helpful. They open up new lines of research because they do make it easier and more accessible. And it's annoying that people don't just yeah, yeah, yeah. own up, doing. own up to where you start. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm, I, I'm with you. I'm with you. Honesty all the way. Yeah, in the history I'm writing, I mean, I use a lot of Arabic sources. I use the translation. Yeah. That's why they were. Well, made. you know, I also wonder, and this is a little more serious, but there's a lot of discussion right now about classics and classics being privileged and elitist. And, you know, a lot of times people are connecting this to race and gender. And, and, and I think all of that is absolutely right. But I think the other piece to this is classicists are so incredibly um, elitist about their, about their knowledge of language, right? And, and so there's a sense of real, um, I don't know what's the word. There's insecurity. Um, insecurity. And yeah. a lot of gatekeeping. Like this is how you, this is yeah, one yeah, way yeah. in which that those gates are are monitored is, yeah. you know, how do you use a translation? Do you, well, you use a lobe? Right. But there's a difference. So in the historical research, languages are more of a tool. Yes. Uh, whereas in classics, they are kind of the thing. That's the of, thing. Of course, of course, of course, of course. And, and I, and I fully understand that. And, and I'm not, yeah. suggesting that we should all abandon learning these languages because we have to learn them and everyone should have to go through re- rigor you know anyone including ancient historians need to go through the rigorous training because otherwise you can't really ever know what you're looking at um okay but there is a certain amount i think of gratuitous gatekeeping that goes on that turns off people and i'm thinking more on the undergraduate level that potentially turns people off to to classics which is unnecessary and unfortunate because um you know classics i think is a great major for a lot of reasons if only classicists were reading the text that i translate anyway (laughs) okay (laughs) all right well shell okay give me uh another point okay um my number uh uh number eight gratuitously long block quotes within the body of a paper or worse yet a footnote so like this like someone who has this enormous block quote and they just slap it in the middle of an of a paper 
and, and, and the worst are when there's multiple block quotes. And by, by block, and, and what I'm talking about are, you know, 15 lines, 20 lines. I mean, just really, and, and we're- and, so what, and, Yeah, what bothers you about it? Because typically the key material in that block quote is one or two sentences. It might even mm. be a phrase. But the, but the author just, I don't know, either they can't be bothered or they can't make a choice or I don't know what it is. Don't bring me right to that line, that, that, that piece of information or that, that illustrative example, that specific place that, that I'm supposed to be looking at in order to understand what this block quote, how it relates to the argument. Um, there's something, um, I don't know, it, it, it annoys me because I feel like it's extra work. Yes. Um, so and, I, and that's what annoys me about it. I, and I don't want to do extra work. It, it's interesting that you should say that because I've caught myself doing something sometimes, and I don't know if it's a bad habit or a good habit. Maybe you tell me, I'll tell you. When I come across a very long quotation in a quote in a piece of scholarship, I'll sometimes skip it. Uh, and and look and see the lines that follow afterwards. What is the author making of this, right? And is is the conclusion yes. that the scholar is trying to extract worth my going back and reading? Yeah, that no, no, quotation? exactly, exactly. And if and if the if the scholar's any good, that those that discussion will follow the block quote. Yes, but of course. It doesn't always, right? I mean, sometimes yeah. the block quote, and this, to be honest, is a problem I see with undergraduate papers, right? I mean, you you, you slap down the evidence, but you don't explain yeah. why it's the evidence. Um, so yes, no, and that is a good strategy. Um, and if I had to sort of a, a particular annoying sort of subgenre is when that enormous block quote is in a foreign language because that even <laughs> untranslated German or Greek or Latin for that matter. And yes. it's thinking, you know, come on, like who wants to work through that again, yes. particularly when I don't know exactly why it is this is here. Yes. Uh, so you mentioned earlier that it imposes extra work. And so it's worth saying a little bit what that extra work is. And for me, it is that you're stepping outside of the whole sort of discursive, you know, voice of the scholar and the way that the art is set up and whatever to switch and reorient your mind and adapt to yeah. the yeah. genre, the context, the voice of a totally different author yeah. in the midst of following a complex exactly. argument. Exactly. Exactly. It's, it's jarring. It, yeah. it is, yeah, it is, it is. It's cognitively jarring. And yes. so I think that is why, and I mean, one of the, one of my personal goals as a writer is to try to make my prose and my argument as clear as possible and, and to not tax the reader any more than I have to. Um, now, not everyone would agree with that. That's that's my goal, and that's my kind of stylistic. Yes, no, I agree. I agree. Thing, but but because that is my stylistic thing, it annoys the hell out of me when people don't follow it. Yes. And I have more things on my list to this yes, point. Yes, yes. Um, so yeah, so I, I that's that just and, and and the key word, by the way, when I first introduced this, is gratuitous. I mean, there are times yeah, yeah, yeah. when you need a really long quote when there's I don't know an ekphrasis or something. I mean whatever there's something that you need the whole thing I'm not saying it's never ever warranted it is sometimes yes. but boy do you need to explain to me you know, coming in and yeah, coming yeah, out yeah. why it is I have to spend all that time and for those of you who put those in footnotes like forget <laughs> it, any of that so don't even if it's in the footnote you've you've completely lost your reader yeah um you know it's even worse when the let's say article is in German and it is quoting a literary text also translated into German but a very different register of the language Yes. More yes. florid, more complex yes. syntax, yes. different vocabulary. Yes. Like, oh. yes, 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 yes. No, Put exactly. Put it into the sun. Yeah, no, no, no. Well, that's when you just wish they would put it back in the original <laughs> so if if that in fact that quote itself is a translation like a german translation of latin or Greek, yes 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 i often think god i wish they just you know 
no, like because put it back in Latin. Sometimes my Latin is easier, better than my. Yes, German, exactly. So I mean, I, exactly. <laughs> Just give me the Greek. Yes. <laughs> All right. Uh, okay. Can I go? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So here's something that I call refutation by 19th century. <laughs> <laughs> so this is when an idea or concept is understood to be invalid simply because someone in the 19th century expressed it. <laughs> now, <laughs> let's be clear. There is a lot of dark stuff in the 19th century. Right? <laughs> I, don't, I don't need to be sold on that. Also, the 19th century invented a lot of stuff conceptually that we don't yeah, hold to yes, anymore. Yes, no. Fine. So did the 20th, right? Um, but by itself, yeah. that's not enough. And yeah, I've yeah. often seen, so you're, you know, you're trying to refute, usually it's not a specific idea, but a concept. Um, if you can like associate it with the 19th century in some way, vague way, um, it's almost like ah, this person used to hang out in a bad neighborhood. And so he's kind of <laughs> suspicious or something. <laughs> um, no, association. <laughs> that's not enough. You you have to say what's wrong with the idea yeah. because the 19th century also came up with a lot of stuff yeah, yeah. that we still use. And so let me ask you a question. I mean, do you think that our field consciously or probably more unconsciously embraces a kind of Whiggish understanding of historical knowledge? That is, you know, anything from the past has to be more primitive and less sophisticated or just plain wrong versus what we are producing today because we are progressing intellectually or at least as scholars maybe not intellectually but we are progressing as scholars over time i mean is that why people do this uh, i don't so there, there are two questions there whether we actually believe that and i think that we do in practice but hesitate to say it uh -huh. Fair enough. Um, yeah. Right. Because, I mean, I think that the idea of any kind of progress makes you look so naive, you yes. know, these days yes. that you'll you'll yes. hesitate to admit it. Yes. Yes. Even though in practice, like you, you have to commit to that view. Otherwise, what we're doing is kind of pointless. Uh, <laughs> on a certain level. Again, pieces on a chessboard. Yep. <laughs> um, right. So I think that so there's a question about whether we can, um, without embarrassment, embrace the idea of progress. Now, by the way, let, let me just say for the record that for years now, I've been writing a new history of Byzantium and, and I'm almost done. Congratulations. And <laughs> thanks. I'll need some therapy. <laughs> um, I am amazed at how much substantive, real progress on so many issues ranging from dates editions, interpretations, you know, everything that has happened in the past generation. Just amazed. And without all of that, first of all, I wouldn't have been able to write it the way I did. And secondly, there might not have been even a reason to write it. <laughs> yeah. Right? Like we're just still stuck in, right? Yeah. So I, I, it, it, was, it was really amazing. I'm actually even thinking of, well, I shouldn't say that, but I'm actually even just thinking of dedicating the book just to my colleagues in the field for doing all of the work that enabled me to do this. Like, you know, it's, it's incredible. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but wait, no. So you had, you had asked if we're, um, well, if this, is okay. Work, I, this kind I, of guilty by 19th century. So I don't, part, I, you know. yeah, I don't think that that kind of argument that reductio ad 19th century, uh, <laughs> I don't think that it's, uh, uh, that it necessarily comes from that Point of view. I think it has to do specifically with the 19th century, um, and and which is a odd century. Um, and actually, I even found a, a interesting article by one of my favorite 19th century intellectual historians, uh, Suzanne Marchand, um, who uh, wrote about like uh, German philhellenism and and German Orientalism in the 19th century. Anyway, and she wrote this article, which is basically about like why are 19th century historians so embarrassed <laughs> of their work. And it's got this wonderful line in it, which is like, I don't know when I first became embarrassed of the 19th century. It wasn't in my undergraduate years. <laughs> um, so there's this idea that the 19th century is basically the, the ideological template for everything that went wrong in the early 20th. 
and like all these ideas about race, it, like it seems right, entirely right. in terms of racism, colonialism, yeah, 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 yeah. and you name it. And the more, how to put this, the more sort of positively aspirational aspects of the 19th century, technological progress, uh, you know, in, in industrialized, you know, just basically the, the kind of social engineering projects that were supposed to elevate humanity out of misery right. are not, they're looked at as naive and, you know, or cynically or whatever. So the whole century has this bad aura, this bad vibe. And I think that's how that argument works. Yeah, no, 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 I, for sure. And I mean, you know, never mind the 19th century is also the, the period of the birth of the modern university. Um, Journals. You know, the, the disciplines that we yes. all kind of know as just in the background are invented largely in the 19th century as, exactly. you know, as specific institutions. Yeah, I mean, I think I think you're right. All, you know, and and not to mention colonialism and imperialism predate the 19th century, and and yeah. you know why the 19th century has to bear the brunt of the 16th century or the 15th century. Um, you know, if we want to even we can yeah. earlier than that is a is a good question. But but I think it's easy. I think it's um, it's the most it's sort of the most egregious period in in terms of these these social engineering projects in terms of the height of european imperialism and sense of superiority all of that is very much built yeah. around the 19th yeah, century yeah. no I, I think that's all true um but but it doesn't mean that everything that came out of the 19th century is ipso facto no, inferior no, no. to what no exactly i mean my god we couldn't do any i mean i i i use the mgh this is this oh yeah of of or you know which is basically a collection of of, of editions that are still the only things out there for me that yeah. were you know largely begun in the 19th century by Taylor mumson right i mean what would our field look like without Taylor mumson have you bookmarked the online version on your browser I have, although the, it's not good. I mean, it's it's not. Mm. This is a whole other conversation. What's going on mm. with that? Because there's this weird beta version that's not very good. I mean, maybe I'm looking at the wrong thing. Anyway, we can talk about this. But sure. Okay. Uh, so you go number seven. Number seven. Uh, uh, this kind of is in a little bit connected to the one I talked about earlier, but it it, it it's along the lines superfluous bibliography and citations when you just pile on hmm. citations to particular events people developments whatever that are you know when four would have sufficed you have 14 um and 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 you have so many that i the reader start to suspect whether you've actually read all of these um and whether there's not some sort of performative erudition going on here um and i'm particularly talking about footnotes and and you don't see this that often but never every now and then someone will throw in a citation in some language that i find really hard to believe they read like i don't know hungarian or something um that annoys me i mean those okay yeah so i was taught in grad school never cite anything if you haven't read it Yes, well, that's a good thing. You, exactly. exactly. Okay. But it turns out there's an alternative approach to citation. We're talking about footnotes more now, more. Yes. Bibliography. Yes, yep. yes, yes um, we are. Although the bibliography is where you cover your ass, so to speak, right? Like, so there's, that's a whole other thing where I haven't really taken something. Yes. This is, this is yes. another problem. But like, here's a book that actually I haven't really grappled with at all, but I know I should have read. So I'll just throw it into my bibliography. So if someone checks, it's there. Right. But I never really. And, and you know, anyway, but that, okay, that's so, a slightly different issue. I agree. So there's an alternative, let's say, policy regarding uh, bibliography and footnotes. So let me run this by you. Tell me what you think. And that is that, no, I'm not citing here things that I've read and engaged with. I'm doing a service to the scholarly reader by providing a, let's say, reasonably comprehensive bibliography on a topic in case the reader wants to go and explore that more. This is just a service. It's I'm not making any claim. Yeah. You know what I mean? I, I do. But that's an historiographical essay. 
that's not a, I mean, that's not what the point of. Sure. But who's going to write a historiographical essay on, say, the massacres of 337 when Constantius kills all his cousins? <laughs> for example, I'm just for example. Right? No, I mean, <laughs> I'm sure we all know grad students who would be interested in that. Um, yeah, I find those citations, those, that kind of uh, approach to footnoting also very distracting. Um, yeah. It, it, it's the sort of thing that reduces the text to like five lines at the top of the page and the exactly, rest of the page exactly, is footnotes. Exactly, exactly. And it's hard to follow that kind it of is, thing. It is, it is. I mean, I should say too, I, I do think it's more common in um, scholarship by Europeans, continental Europeans. I mean, there seems to be more of this need to kind of, I don't know, cover your cover your tracks as it were by citing everything under the sun um yeah so if it maybe were not, a case, maybe I'm wrong that. yeah if it were a case where you're citing everything by say a specific group of patrons like you need to please certain yes. people yes. because they write letters for you or whatever right, right. But that's not often what happens because usually these citations go back to like usually the 19th they go the back 19th. to Adam. <laughs> right? It's like you're well, really, if they're really good, they'll go back to the 16th. Like they'll start citing, you know, these kind of yeah. early modern scholars and Okay. Yeah. So okay, let me let me try to defend this. I'm not trying to defend it. Really, <laughs> I'm just kind of, you know. Um, let me try a different approach. Um, I have been on um, like uh, hiring and promotion committees in Europe. Not, not in the, this does not happen in the US as, as far as in my experience, uh, where um, it's possible, I've heard colleagues object to the candidacy of say X or Y because they don't cite this particular work or that particular scholar in their notes as if that is a professional oversight that implies incompetence. Like if you were truly competent, you would have cited Professor X's book on whatever, even though like it doesn't have anything relevant to your argument necessarily. Like you don't need to cite it to, you know, as a plank in what you're doing. Right. But that instills this sort of defensive approach. Like I have to cover myself, like you said, right. I, I don't want someone to say, oh, but he's, yeah, unaware of yeah, yeah. you know Smith's book from 1902, right? Because somebody else will yeah. That's the most important work ever ever created <laughs> on whatever you're doing. Yeah, no, I mean there's a bunch of different things going on here. I mean sometimes it is citation as defense, citation as homage. Like you know, there's all Definitely. sorts of ways in which the footnote takes on roles that very I personally don't think it should do yeah. but that's but this is again my pet peeve this is this is not about some sort of you know universal set of rules that I'm laying down um yeah all right I just, I just I, think footnotes should do what they're supposed to do I mean I have a very almost clinical yes I agree approach to footnotes um, I agree and and a more recent this actually leads me to my next point okay all right so you could say a most recent study of something that itself cites the previous studies is sufficient. You cite that one and people can go there and yeah, find all the yeah, previous ones. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So here's where that approach um, is used in a mischievous way or in a sort of dishonest way. And this is what I call uh, laundering uh, scholarly opinions. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so how does this work? So normally you will have either a like a school of thought um, like they uh, that has a you know particular view of a topic um, and so doesn't like the work of other people, uh, scholars who don't share that view of the topic. Um, or it might be a, a patron client network, which a lot of those exist, uh, again, especially in Europe, but whatever. It's, a, it's a different topic um, where they tend to like to prefer. Sorry. They prefer to cite scholarship like from within the network, right? Because I think actually this might yeah. increase their citation indexes and they're all kind of mutually increasing each other's yeah, yeah, citations. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Now, suppose that a scholar from outside the fold, the maybe someone you don't like either personally or is not part of the network or whose scholarship generally you don't agree with, but writes this one thing that, that is I, good. 
Right. And that is critical for your for your own work. Um, yes. Now, but you don't want to cite it. So what, what happens often is that you get a junior member of your network or school to write an article on sort of sort of the same topic that kind of reviews recent opinions about this, including that by the outsider. Right, right. right and right, maybe right. tweaks it a little bit, adds a few, like, maybe, okay, maybe it wasn't the 4th of September, but the 5th of or whatever. And so then everybody, so those opinions are now laundered into a citation by a member of the network. Yeah. I've seen that happen. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, that's devious. I mean, I mean, it suggests that there's a real kind of, I don't know, intentionality to it. I mean, do you, do you see like a cabal in, I, you know, like, <laughs> where, where, where are we going with this? Like, do you, how, how deep is this conspiracy almost? I mean, I mean, this, this is deep. I've never been part of such a network. So I honestly no. don't know if it can be done that way. But you know, they exist. Well, again, it's, I, I mean, it's like, come on. The idea belongs to, you know, Scholar X. Right, right, it, right. You can recycle it all you yeah. want, but like, you know, credit is, you might not like other things that that scholar has written. Yeah. Why? So, no, and actually in all seriousness, where I do think this is a problem is I think sometimes scholar x might be a woman yeah i mean i mean a lot of times this has yeah. to do with gender and 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 you know perceptions of authority within a field right and and how how scholars are kind of ranked in this informal yet very um concrete way and yes. so that can be quite nefarious when these kinds of things happen. Um, I guess the piece I'm trying to, um, I'm trying to imagine that conversation between the senior scholar and his student, and I'm going to gender that deliberately, okay. his student. Um, and, and I'm wondering, I mean, do you see that as a discussion? I mean, did, does, does the senior scholar say, hey, here's an idea take this article that just came out by, you know, some, some woman in some, you know, random American institution that we're not interested in. We have no connection to her and we don't care. How can you, can you take this and, and build on it and do something else? I mean, is that the, do you imagine something that specific and deliberate, or do you think it's more baked into just how people approach scholarship again in a world where there there aren't a lot of new data sets flowing in to get our hands on yeah no um i think it can be done without anything so explicit um okay. uh, yeah i think that you know, it's like a, oh i was watching this uh, this video the other day on youtube like over lunch where it was like a mob boss that just is keep giving vague orders to the to the henchmen it's like well go take care of this problem and the, and the henchmen like do, do you mean kill that person? Like, what do you mean? Right? So, no, I, I, I imagine a situation that's far more like, well, um, you know, uh, Scholar X has written this. Uh, it's interesting, but it, I, we, it needs to be, you know, changed in certain ways. Like, I don't, I think there's something wrong. You focus on the wrong things. Like, the, the, this doesn't seem right. And that doesn't seem right. You know, why don't you do something where you fix, you know, or what, or put it in context or whatever. And, and yeah, that just eventually becomes the, the thing that the network cites. Um, in the case of women, what's interesting is that I think that might be, there might be a, a, a question of authority there. In other words, let's suppose that that publication is actually pretty important for the argument that you want to build. Um, but you'd so much rather rely overtly on like some uh, established male scholar. Yeah. And so, you know, they'll just kind of pile onto that and create a secondary bibliography that can then be cited on the surface without having to get to where it's all coming right. from. Right. And, and the women's that, that seminal piece by the woman gets, gets buried. In buried. If, yeah. if, if cited it at all. Yeah, no, no. I've seen that happen all the time. I mean, quite frankly, it's happened to me. So That's I completely see that. Um, and it's, it is frustrating. It's very, very frustrating. So, I mean, Paula, you know, this is, I think this was your phrase from a conversation a while ago, the politics of citation. I mean, it's, it's. Oh yeah. 
it's, oh, it's real. I mean, com- it's, yes. It's real. Yes. I, I've seen some articles <laughs> that are, it's the citations is pure politics. It's just who I want to like kiss up to, um, who I want to put a stamp of approval. Like that's it. It's yeah, not based yeah. on like what's being published in that area. Yeah. Uh, yes. It's extraordinary. Yeah, actually, this 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 leads me. This was actually my my top ten annoyance, but I'll I'll okay I'll, jump to it. It, it yeah. fits perfectly. Okay, acknowledgments that thank every single important scholar whom you've ever been in the same room as. Right, those acknowledgments that are like name pages after and name pages. after yes, yes. name and they're all really important people and this is somebody you know and, and you and it's almost always junior scholars who do this um don't do it people just cite the folks who actually helped you if somebody made a comment on a paper you gave at a conference once yeah. that person doesn't need to be cited in your acknowledgments i mean that kind of thing really annoys me so why uh, do you think it's done for the reasons that we were just saying, it's about politics. It's it's this person's attempt to situate themselves, and I won't gender it, although I do have opinions, probably unscientific anecdotal sense of whether men or women yeah. do it more. And I would say men do it more than women, but that's just my sense. Um, let, let me let me position myself in a network. I mean, part of it or multiple networks, right? I mean, this kind of thanking business, yes. which, you, you know, yes, we should thank the people who help us. It's important. But don't thank somebody because they're famous. And, you know, maybe they've told you they liked their your paper. I don't know. Yeah, you, okay. You, you, so can I give you a funny spin on this? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, a long time ago, I was a review editor at Speculum. And so the books would come into the journal and we would then look for reviewers. And one thing that you do as a review editor is to look at the intellectual debts yes. that are acknowledged yes. in the I preface. I was a review editor as well. Yes. Right. And you should try not to assign it to people who are thanked in the preface as having contributed materially to making of the book. I, I, I know where you're going. And already at the time, I instantly realized, hey, wait a minute. This is a great way to exclude people from reviewing yeah, your book. Yeah, you thank yeah. them in the in the acknowledgments and and <laughs> even though they had nothing to do with it. Well, that's exactly why as a book review editor and now as an editor of a journal that works with book review editors, right. I say ignore that principle uh. because it, just because somebody is thanked in an acknowledgment tells me nothing. It tells me that maybe you were once in the same room as that right. person. Yeah, Maybe yeah. once you had an email exchange, but that does not tell me that there is a substantial intellectual exchange between you and that person, which only in those situations would I say that individual is excluded from writing a review. So, yes. but, but I've, I've heard that, that people deliberately thank every single person they've ever met at any point in their career precisely to I don't know, to to prevent someone, particularly someone they're like afraid of from, yeah, yeah. from writing a review. But sorry, not on my watch, at least. Maybe other people will, will continue with that. I just think that's nonsense. Maybe we're giving people some really bad advice on how to game the system. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. I mean, I don't. You mean right now or yes, yes. Yeah, no. Listen, well, listen. I I mean again, these are these are about personal pet peeves. Yes. And, and so now you know how to game me. Um okay. perhaps All right. other people can be gamed differently. All right, can I give you another one? Yeah, go, go. Okay. Go. So this is scholarly writing that is so defensive. That is it's it's yes. written to prevent any possible criticism. And it goes so far as to deny that anything meaningful can be said about the topic in question, (laughs) right? And that, so I actually, this bothered me so much, defensive writing, that I I tried hard um, in writing this history of Byzantium to exclude it entirely from the, my writing altogether, as, as much as I could. In other words, okay, some things we just don't know about, and you have to, you have to acknowledge that. 
Uh, but I, I was reading these books on prose. Um, and there's this wonderful book on, on classical French prose of the uh, 17th century, which I, I, I found that type of prose to be pretty interesting. Um, and I'm going to read you a quotation of that. They, they talk about precisely this thing. There is something at least mildly fraudulent about offering to present a subject and then substituting for it the problematic nature of the presentation. <laughs> All right. And, and this one, uh, I think this one was from Pinker who also wrote a book on style. And, and he Stephen has Pinker. a- Stephen Pinker. Yes, 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 okay. yes. Uh, it was a good book on style. They say what you will about uh, his uh, views Pinker. about modern <laughs> progress or whatever. And so he has the following example, which will ring so true about so much scholarship that I read. Let me tell you how to make bread pudding. My God, <laughs> have you any idea how impossible it is to actually explain how to cook in writing? <laughs> Uh, anyway, hyper defensive writing. Yeah, yeah. That aims to yeah. cover like we don't know. Oh, this is so infinitely complex. How can we begin no, to talk no. about houses in ancient Rome? I mean, <laughs> like it's a house. I'm sure it had walls and a door. Yeah. No. 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 I mean, I think there's a lot. And it's interesting too. It would be really interesting to go and try to systematically see what topics tend to receive that sort of, you know, apparatic, like we can't, like we, we can only know what we don't know. There's nothing else to know except that we can't know anything mm. argument. And whether they're on, you know, in some ways, the kind of some of the classic topics of social history from the bottom up and, you know, yeah, have yeah, we yeah. use this as a, as a tool to kind of not discuss certain aspects of the past, um, because we just tell ourselves we couldn't possibly know anything about that. Um, and I think, you know, we can, especially if we're willing to be speculative and anyway, this is not about yeah, yeah, yeah. the other side of it, but I, I, I find that I do find that kind of um, hyper negative um, kind of treatment. In fact, one of the, one of the, one of the left, one of the exercises that I, I give my undergraduates when I teach a kind of introduction to historical methods is we read Natalie Davis's The Return of Martin Gare, who uses her sources to, to great ends that are in its deeply speculative um, social history. She's trying to reconstruct the yeah. The emotional lives of peasants, right? Who who left behind no writings themselves. It's 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 an extraordinary work. There's a very famous critique of it by another early modernist named Robert Finley, and most of it's just this: like we can't possibly know this, we can't possibly know that, we can't possibly know this, we can't possibly know that, and it's just, you know, when you put them up against each other, it's really quite dramatic in terms of how you know, in terms of, you know, epistemologically where these two different people are coming from. And, and I, I don't know, I don't see the point sometimes of being that negative. And it is, well, it is, it is frustrating. I mean, there's a point where if, if you're not prepared to say something, you know, positive is actual yeah, about yeah, the topic, yeah, 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 yeah. don't write about it until. Yeah, exactly. 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 Um, now, if you believe that a, uh, a superstructure of, um, belief or knowledge about the past has been erected on flimsy foundations, I guess then you'll have to do an Alan Cameron on. <laughs> yes. I mean, right. I mean, there's a you point. Know, it's okay to go after the house of cards and, yes. and to sort of, you know, you know, emphasize, discover, emphasize points of weakness and arguments. I mean, that's fair game for sure. Um should I tell you my favorite example of defensive writing is a scholar who spent who spent like this is like a whole page developing an argument about I don't know like who, like who wrote it I don't remember it was a long time ago but ended uh, the the argument and the paragraph by saying or it could have been someone else. <laughs> <laughs> and this was so that no one could say. But you didn't consider that it could have been someone else. <laughs> well, you know that was the that was some some reviewer <clears throat> said this, and so oh, right, right, yes, yes, the, yes. That's his covering his ass again. You know, here, yep, okay, could have been something else. 
which of course, you know, could be the last line and pretty much everything I've ever written. So, so. Yeah, yeah. I've only got one more. Okay. You probably have more. I do, but I don't have to go through them all. I'll try uh, to select. Give us one more and then I'll okay. give you. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, actually, I'll do two. Okay. Um, quickly. Titles that don't tell me what the article, essay, or book is actually about. Ooh. That was a big thing in the yeah. 80s and 90s. I know, early 2000s. And oof, I've now come back to this place where I just want to know what the article's about. Just tell me what it's about. That's one. And then the other one, overuse of the phrase, as I have argued elsewhere. Why does that bother you? Because well, not the over, I mean, the, the phrase overuse. like, yes. Okay. You can use that maybe once in an article. Like, okay. Yeah, if you want to set up something that you've made an argument, but the people who come back to it over and over and over and over and over again, then it just feels like I'm reading a rehearsal of this argument you've already made. Um, or you haven't bothered to do anything new. You're just taking work right. you've already done and using it typically in a in a defensive critical way to beat up somebody else yes uh, so the the as i've argued elsewhere uh used repeatedly over the course of a, a article or chapter or whatever referring to the same one thing that, that yes oh uh, yeah okay. that would be that would be a particular yes and that's often what it is right i mean yes. it, it's like one article um and okay. and so you're so here's a here's a possible scenario for how that might happen. I'm just guessing here. Yeah, yeah. Um, you've written an article. Um, for a while, it seemed established. Now someone's coming after it. And you want to write a response. But the genre of response to my critics, <laughs> right? That sort of faded out in the 19th century, maybe. <laughs> so now you have to write it. As if, as if it's like some ob objective view from nowhere, like I'm looking at this topic. Now, in reality, you're just responding to critics, right? So that means that you're having to refer back to the original yeah. article, but not in the guise of I'm actually defending my original article from like 83, no, I do. And I think that probably is what's going on at a lot of times. Yeah. I think also, too, it's it's. Um, it's performative, right? It's this sort of, you know, well, I've argued, you know, as I've argued and as I've made in this argument and I've made in this argument and I've made in this piece and I, you know, where the person just constantly cites themselves yeah. over and over again. Yep, yep, yep. Um, I don't know. It just seems uncouth or something. I don't know. Um, yeah. But yeah. Wait, and the first one was, oh, titles. Oh, that titles don't that don't tell me what the work is actually about. Yeah. And that's, I, I, this is kind of me being an old curmudgeon. I mean, I think I was more happy and playful with titles maybe when I was, when I was younger, but I've just gotten to this point where I don't, please yeah, don't make I, I'm harder. with you with that. What does that mean? Yes. Just tell me what that means. Just tell me what you're trying to say. <laughs> I don't have that much time left. Just tell me what you're trying to say. <laughs> All right. My last one. Okay. Um, and this is not so much in scholarship, uh, but this does come across in uh, often uh, conference presentations or just meeting people at conferences. Uh, and they convey the following kind of attitude that when you've worked on a topic, let's say an author or a particular problem, you own it. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> yes, and that when other people come along afterwards to work on this, that is a personal attack, it, mm -hmm. it, it can only be a personal attack uh, because uh, it implies one of two things. Either they said something that you're going to correct or they didn't say something that by virtue of the fact that you're working on it, you think is important that they didn't say. Yeah. And therefore their work is deficient. Yeah. And Ooh, so, yeah. yeah, I don't know if you've come across this attitude but oh, all the time. Oh, I mean, yeah. it's, it's classic. But okay, I, I actually, so, I, I see it even more in a more negative way than you. I think it's gatekeeping. It's sort of classic. Gatekeeping. Oh, sure. 
Sure. Um, um, perhaps maybe that's not what you mean. So perhaps it's more common in Byzantine, like middle, later Byzantine, because there you have or had once upon a time many, many texts, you know, places, periods, problems, whatever that that hadn't that had only uh, received attention by one person. And, and so they tended to be kind of more personalized. In, in antiquity and late antiquity, there's so much written about everything, I, yeah. I suppose, that it, it would be difficult to claim to own something, you know what I mean? But I, th- this gatekeeping is actually even enforced by others. It's like, I, I, I tell a friend, oh, I'm thinking of writing an article about X. And they'll say, oh, so-and-so has written about that. You can't do it. But yeah, but I'm not going to write anything resembling what so-and-so Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, but, you know, they'll take offense. No, no. I mean, that's, again, I think this is something that it's one of the uglier parts of of academia, Um, you know, particularly our our world where the stakes are relatively low. You have- people whose whose entire selves are built around their their expertise in one particular in, in one tiny little thing and if you you know wade into that and you don't cite the right things you don't talk to them first you don't get their sort of blessing um yeah. i i i you know i certainly when i was working much earlier on in my career on stuff to do with the papacy. Oof. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so, oh, um, yes. yeah, no. And, and I think that is, you don't say that is real. So, and, and it's, it's ridiculous and nobody owns anything. And just because somebody else is working on something doesn't mean that you not only can't work on it, but that you shouldn't because you will bring something entirely different to it. Um, which is why I always, sort of, I personally don't get upset when I hear other people are working on similar things to me because whatever they're doing, I'll, you know, I'll find part of it helpful. I'll find part of it not helpful. And I'll, whatever, and I'll be doing something different because I'm a different person. Yes. That's actually very important to say explicitly. And I I keep saying it to uh, graduate students and, and junior faculty the odds of someone who's working on the same topic producing something even res- remotely resembling what you're going to do are, are remote. Yeah. In fact, they're they're likely not going to produce anything like what they originally set out to produce. Exactly, anywhere. exactly, exactly, and certainly not something that's on a website. You know, you know, on their personal website. God knows what they're working on now. So don't. Yeah, this is this is something people should feel confident about. Just having faith in themselves and their own, you know, innovative ideas and whatnot. So I, I agree. And I say this to grad students too, like the whole has to be new is yes, it has to make a contribution, but it doesn't have to be completely and utterly different from what every single other person has ever done. Yeah. Because Shall again, we yeah. get new data sets. <laughs> um. Shall we find some positive note to end? Because yes, no, 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 no. There's lots of positive things to say. Sure. These are, I feel like mostly we've been sort of nitpicking. Yes, yes. So, yeah. Um, so it's important to acknowledge that these are yeah. pet peeves. Pet peeves. No, for peeves. sure. And, and yes. a lot of it's stylistic, right? I yes. mean, this is aesthetic. You know what? What do I like? What do yes. I not like? And and that's utterly subjective to say the least. Yes, it's more like mm-hmm. eye rolling than throwing across yes. the room. Yes, yes, yes. And no, I mean there are lines not to be crossed, and I don't think we've been talking about any line no, that no, couldn't no. be crossed and isn't crossed all the time. And and these people do just fine in the world. Yes, I I, I just I was just feeling a bit petty, and I wanted <laughs> these are small things and. As I said earlier, um, I I stay in this field and 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 do this work precisely because I'm so regularly inspired by good work that people are doing. Absolutely, um, and I love to be challenged intellectually. I, I you know and yeah, in my field, there's a lot of recycling and repetition, and it, it's drudgery and it's a bit boring. And I'll, often I'll read a book and like ten percent of it is new, but so often enough. I'll read something that's just really, really intellectually engaging. Uh, and I, I love that. I, I live for that. No, exactly. I mean, why, why am I still here? Yeah. Um, 
why do I get excited to wake up in the morning and read? I mean, right now I'm, I'm on sort of effectively on sabbatical and I'm just all I'm doing all day is reading and it is glorious Um, and reading, you know, a combination of secondary and primary literature. And I'm reading stuff that was written 40 years ago and I'm reading stuff that was written last year and in various ways, all of it is just so fascinating and inspiring. And, and I learn something new from pretty much everything I read. Um, yeah. Even if it's just a turn of phrase, I mean, sometimes just the way mm-hmm. people articulate an idea that maybe I, I knew this before, but the way that they articulate yes. it again, this is where language and rhetoric can be exactly, yeah, yeah. positive and, 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 you know, have a kind of eternal impact on, on how we think. So I, I, it's not all, it's not all bad. Most of it, if it were all bad, I wouldn't, you know, we wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be editing a journal. I wouldn't be doing any of these things. That's right. Uh, You're editing a journal. That's I am funny. editing a journal. I know. Thank you I for your service. <laughs> You're very welcome. All right. That's very a great welcome. place on which to end. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed this. I'm about Absolutely. to enter hours and hours of job interviews. Uh, best so, of luck. Hey, we're hiring. That's awesome. It is really exciting. Yes. I know yes. I'm thrilled that Classics at OSU is living on to see another year. All right, Tina. Take Let's care. Amen. Take care. Thank you.